0: Bismillah rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alamin wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak sayyidina wa maulana muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Allahumma allimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima allamtana wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'aleema innaka ala kulli shay'in qadir amma ba'd Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh uh, this is Alhamdulillah lesson 107 of the Radiant Light where we continue our journey through the seerah of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa And for the past couple of sessions we have been talking about both the conditions and lead up to the Battle of Khaybar and the first part of the Battle of Khaybar. We, talk, we spoke last week about how the Prophet وسلم, marched out with how many soldiers? Who remembers? Yeah, so the narration says 1700. One says 1,400 soldiers marching out to Khaybar. And last week we spoke about how they sieged the first of the forts of Khaybar, the one known as Qalatu naim the fort of Naim. So there are 1,700 Muslim fighters. How many among the Jews of Khaybar were there as fighters?
1: 3,000. Now,
0: Ibn Sa'ad and Al-Waqidi and some others, they mention 10,000. They mentioned 10,000. And that's what we mentioned last week. So, Taking from Al-Waqidi's account in his maghazi, there were 10,000 who were going out in battle rows each day in anticipation of the Muslim arrival to Khaybar. It said 10,000, 1,000 of whom were wearing armor. And Al-Waqidi says in his maghazi that they rose every single night before dawn, strapped on their weapons and lined up in rows, in formations, all 10,000 warriors. Now, the question is, because you said 3,000, the question is, should that be taken literally, or is there more to it? Certainly, some of the early Seerah collections, such as Al-Waqidi's Maghazi, mentioned 10,000. And obviously, 10,000 seems like it is a round number, it's rounded up. Is it literally 10,000 or were there less? It's most likely they were less because we're not dealing with matters of ahkam, of halal and haram or the core tenets of faith. And this transmission standards for the works of Seerah and Maghazi are significantly uh, less stringent than hadith concerning halal and haram and matters of aqaid. So there's a very distinct possibility that the numbers of Jewish fighters at Haybar were significantly less. Um, And also you have to consider that there are soldiers reported to have gone out and formed rows. But you also have those soldiers or fighting age males who are shoring up the defenses inside of each of those fortresses. So when you take all of that into consideration, you might come up to a rounded up number of maybe 4,000 give or take. It's really hard to reconstruct that. As again, seerah is not fiqh. It's not aqaid. So the standards are much less stringent. So if we accept the narration that there's 10,000 fighters, we could argue that that's a total number including all fighting age males. Allah Ta'ala knows best. It's most likely when we reconstruct the seerah that the Jews of Khaybar never really intended to meet the Muslims head-on in formations, in traditional battle. We can assume from the reports that, number one, they didn't think that the Muslims would arrive and that they would have to defend their fortresses the way they did, number one. Number two, when they got an inkling that, of an idea that they may come, they didn't anticipate them to arrive so soon. And so when you put it all together, there's a strong chance that these numbers are a little high and that it was probably more around 4,000, especially when you divide up all of those troops between the various fortresses that were sieged. So the first fortress that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims sieged was the fortress of Naim. And this was the largest fort on one of the two sides of Khaybar. We mentioned that as an oasis town, it was roughly divided into two parts. So of the first part that they sieged, this was the largest fort on that side of Khaybar. There's another larger fort on the other side that they're gonna to get to later, that we'll talk about today. So we know also from the Sirah that this was not a traditional battle where there were battle rows on each side. It was siege warfare. And the Muslims were under equipped and under prepared, and they had not had this kind of extensive experience engaging in siege warfare. They did not have the tools to engage in siege warfare. And because they're not close to Medina, they're bringing their own food supplies. So here you see a problem. If you're engaged in siege warfare and you have a steady supply chain bringing you food and provision, it becomes a waiting game. You can wait out those inside of the fort. They will eventually run out of supplies because they are contained. As long as you have a steady supply of material, of food, water, and so on. But the Muslims are at Khaybar. They're very far from home. They're 150 kilometers from Medina. So they're bringing their provisions along with them. They're bringing their rations, and they're rationing out the food. This will become a problem, as you'll see. As they're waiting in the siege warfare, they eventually run out of food. So after this first battle in the siege of the fort of Naim, a kind of pattern emerged that would apply to every single fort among the fortresses of Khaybar. The Muslims would surround the fortress and try to force the inhabitants to surrender through that constant pressure. But this of course would prove difficult for them because they didn't have siege equipment. And the Jews inside of the forts of Khaybar are firing arrows at them. They are throwing heavy objects and stones and things like that over the walls because you want to be close enough to get inside, but if you get too close, you could be hit by some projectile, something they've dropped from the top of the wall. So one of the seerah narrations says that the Muslims are trying to fight back and fire arrows, but they're getting swarmed with arrows from a higher position inside of those fortresses, such that they are picking up the stray arrows that land here and there, and using them to replenish their own arrows that they're firing that are going over the wall. Uh, One narration says that the arrows got so close that they even struck, or they pierced some of the, the clothing worn by the Prophet as he's wearing and that he removed it from his clothing. So this was not traditional warfare. It was frustrating to the Muslims because they didn't have the siege equipment. So it became a waiting game to eventually draw them out into duels to eventually find a way to get inside and secure the surrender of whoever's there. So this is going on by day. You can't fight like this at night. So in the cover of darkness, as the fighting dies down and the Muslims go back to the camp to rest and replenish, in the cover of night, a lot of the fighters from the Jews of Khaibar are using the cover of night to slip out of those fortresses to go to other fortresses. So they're trying to avoid a full-scale conflict by moving from one fort to the other and slipping out at night. So Ad naim was taken because of the fall of uh, Mirhab, the chief of the people in that fort, and his brother Yasir, regarding whom the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam took a positive omen, a positive fa'al, because uh, Mirhab means welcome and Yasir means easy. So it's been made welcoming and easy. So. It eventually fell and the Muslims gained control of it after about 14 days. So now we move on to the next fortresses, the remaining fortresses. In the seerah, they tell us that the next fortress the Muslims went to in this long-term siege was the fort of one Al saab ibn al-Mu'adh. Al saab ibn al-Mu'adh, his fortress had about 500 fighters inside. And this included some of the Yahud that escaped from Na'im to go inside of that fort. So, if you count the departure date from Medina when the Muslims left to the night camping outside of Khaybar and the 10 or so days it took to capture the fort of Na'im, it's been probably a little over two weeks. So, about 14 or so days have transpired. And after these 14 days, the food supplies have dwindled. This is a problem. Despite the meager rations that the Muslims had, they had to go from one fort to the next, from one fort to the next. So the lack of food became a huge problem. Now, one narration tells us that when they got to the fortress of Asar ibn Mu'adh, the siege took three days. Three days not 10, like Naim. And on the third day of the siege, some of the men of Banu Sahm, of Aslam, came to the Prophet Sallallahu with a complaint. They said, Ya Rasulullah, Wallahi, we are tired. We are weary and we don't have any food left. Our clan, we've run out of food. Do you have any extra rations? that you can give to us because we are famished. Now, it's hard enough to be hungry when you're not fighting. But if you're engaged in siege warfare, going back and forth and dodging arrows in the heat of the sun, you can imagine the toll that hunger took on them. So they go to the Prophet ﷺ to ask for more rations. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't have any more rations to give to them. So he made a du'a. He said, O Allah, you know their hal, their condition, their state, and that they have no strength, and that I have nothing in my possession to give them. So O Allah, give them victory of the mightiest of fortresses in wealth with much food and much fat. Food is food. Fat is used for cooking. It's used to add the the calories to the food give them their for- the greatest of their fortresses in wealth with much food and much fat. So here he's making dua that those hungry fighters succeed and that they're given access to food by means of victory against one of the forts. And indeed that's exactly what happened. We actually have a side narration that relates to fiqh here. A lot of the fiqh that we know about was revealed in the context of these maghazi. The fiqh is not just happening in Medina when people are going about their normal day-to-day routines. It's happening on journeys. It's happening during battles. And this is one example, because it's mentioned in this exact story that after they complained about the hunger, other companions are also hungry. So one narration says that some of the Muslims there at Khaybar noticed that about 20 or 30 donkeys that belonged to the Jews of Khaybar somehow got out of their pens. So they're roaming around. And they were so hungry that they went after these donkeys, took them, slaughtered them, field-dressed them, cut the meat up, and started cooking it and eating it, eating from the donkey meat. Now the Prophet Sallallahu eventually gets word of what some of these Muslims are doing Because they're so hungry He goes over to them and he disapproves of what they're doing And tells them that donkey meat is in fact haram to eat It is haram So that fiqh of the prohibition of eating donkey meat Is communicated during this battle of Khaybar Because of that extreme hunger And they just didn't know But now now that information is conveyed and we know that in our fiqh and it happened here. So on the third day of the Muslims sieging this fort of Sa'ab ibn Mu'adh, on the third day, it was taken before Maghrib time. Eventually they succeeded and when they got inside of the fort, when it was finally opened, the Muslims go inside and what do they find? They find massive quantities of grain and fat, animal fat, And lots and lots of barley. So now they have food. So it had the most food stores of any other fort in all of Khaybar. And the companions of the Prophet ﷺ ate from the food storage in this fort for the duration of the battle. Now they have replenishment. Now they have more energy. Now they can continue with the fight energized, hydrated, nourished, and ready to go. Now, when they got inside, in addition to finding lots of barley and lots of animal fat, they found some other things. They found siege equipment, the kind of equipment and tools you would need to successfully siege a compound. What did they find exactly? Well, the sira tells us that they found a disassembled, mangonel, you know, that's a fancy word. That's not really a fancy word, it's just an old word for a kind of weapon that no one uses anymore. A mangonel, you're familiar with the term catapult. What is the difference between a catapult and a mangonel? They're very similar, except that the mangonel doesn't have the torsion that you have with a catapult. The manjaniq, because someone had asked last week, the manjaniq would not be used till way later. But this type of siege equipment was used. Now the mangonel doesn't have the torsion of a catapult. It's typically much smaller, and the advantage of the mangonel is that, uh, because of the way it's constructed, it uses a lot of manpower and not the torsion. Uh, and also, it enables you to reload it very quickly compared to a catapult. With a catapult, you have to put this large boulder in. You have to pull it back, you have to get it to lock, you have to set it up. It takes a lot of preparatory work before you can even fire one rock. And then once it's fired, you gotta start that process all over again. And in many ways, you can probably compare it to the, the difference between a regular bow and arrow and a crossbow, right? The bow and arrow, you can fire as many shots as you can load. So you load in one arrow, you put it inside, you draw, you release. You pull out another one from your quiver and do it again. It's really as fast as you can draw and it's lighter. Meanwhile, a crossbow requires some bodily strength. It takes time to lock the arrow in and pull it back and get it to lock and then aim and fire. So the process requires more strength and it takes a little bit longer to do, even though it's more powerful. It's more powerful for that reason. The counterpoint is that it takes more time to get more to get another one loaded. Similar, the mangonel, They were able to use this now. They also found some leather-covered siege weapons, things that could shield from falling objects and stuff like that. And these will soon come in handy at the Battle of Khaybar. So three days after sieging that fort, the fort of Sa'b ibn mu'ath they get inside and they find all this equipment. They now move on to the next fort which is known as the Qala'a of Az-Zubayr. az zubayr or the fort of Az-Zubayr, was another of these forts. Any of the survivors of the siege at Sa'ib ibn Mu'adh's fort managed to scurry away and seek shelter inside of this fort. So it became, I wouldn't say it's exactly like whack-a-mole, but... They're not putting up stiff resistance to the point where when it's open, they fight to the death. No, they, they try to escape in the Malay, and then they get to the next fort. So they're in this fort now. Now this fort, the fort of Qala Zubair, it's on top of a hill relative to the other forts in Khaybar. It's on top of a hill. So now you have two problems. You have, number one, it's a fort again. Number two, it's on top of a hill. So they also have that advantage of the higher ground. And the Muslims laid siege to this fort like the previous one. And like the previous one, it took them three days. So during this siege, the third siege, we have an incident. There was a Jewish man named Ghazzal. And he came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Ya Abul Al-Qasim, that was the kunya of the Prophet ﷺ, will you give me a guarantee of safety? Amen. If I direct you to that which will give you victory over the people here and will send you to the people of Ashak. So it's another sub-clan. The people of Ashak are overwhelmed in fear of you. So he's giving him an offer. If you give me protection, a guarantee of my own safety, I will tell you how you can get the advantage over them and succeed. The Prophet agrees and gives him this guarantee of protection. And this Jewish man, Ghazal, says to him, If you lay siege to Qal'atu Zubayr for an entire month, it will not trouble them whatsoever. It will be no problem to them whatsoever, even if you did it for a full month. Why? He said, Because they have underground cisterns, underground. Uh, water supply, and they go outside at night, and they drink from that, and they bring it back. So they have a water supply that's close by. He says, they go out at night, they fetch water, and then they return to the fort, and they spend the rest of the day shielding themselves from you. If you were to cut off their water supply, they would have no choice but to surrender. So here is the solution. He's telling him very clearly, because they have food inside, we presume that, the only thing they need to get from the outside is water. And that water is not far from the fort at all. They sneak out at night, they go through the cut, as we say, and they get the water, they come back at night, and no one's the wiser. So they could continue doing this for as long as they want. He said, if you cut off that water supply, they will be forced to surrender. So what did he do? He tells him that they don't have an internal water supply, so they have to go out. So if you cut it off, they have no choice but to surrender. And so the Prophet ﷺ does exactly that. He goes to the water supply near the fort, and he has the Muslims build a dam. So this means that the water is no longer reaching those cisterns, those bodies of water from which they collect at night. And once they discover this, they have no access to water. They are forced to surrender. And so they surrendered. They didn't even put up a fight. They knew that there was no chance. So they surrendered. So what would have been one month or more became three days before the Muslims were able to uh, conquer that fort. So now, remember the Jewish man said to him that after this fort, you have these other people, this other clan of the people of Khaybar and Shaq. He said about them, they're overwhelmed in fear of you. You won't really have a problem with them because they're very, very scared. So now they're going to those fortresses. The fortresses that are manned by the people of that sub-clan known as Shaq. And they have multiple fortresses that are belonging to that clan. The the first of those fortresses was known as Qal'atu Ubay, the fortress of Ubay. And the Sira accounts mentioned that when they were able to engage in fighting with those fighters held up inside, when they would come out, the fighting was fierce and there were several duels. But in the course of these fights, these duels, they lost them all and the Muslims were able to gain entrance into the fortress. So it wasn't much of a fight, although there were some fierce duels before they got inside. It wasn't a huge resistance. When they got inside, the Sira tells us that when they get inside, they find furniture, they find sheep, they find more food supplies, and so on. What exactly happened here? We weren't there, and we're, pe- we're piecing together various narrations. What It seems like what happened is they were scared, but, you know, they're still armed, so someone has to go out and put up a fight. The duels occur, they lose these duels, and the men inside beat a hasty retreat after their men were cut down in the duels. So there was nothing; there was not much of a fight going on inside of the fortress once the Muslims entered. So they managed to go out. We could assume they're, coming, they're leaving from another entrance, another area. They beat a hasty retreat. The Muslims are not trying to wipe out the people. They're just trying to gain control over everything. So after this, they go on to the next fort. The next fort was Qal'atu Nizar, the fort of Nizar. And the seerah works tell us that this fortress was very heavily fortified. And it is said that the Jews on this side of Khaybar, where this fortress is located, were the strongest and the fiercest and the most skilled of all of them in the arts of fighting. So, this means that they're shooting lots of arrows, even more than the others. They're putting up a stiffer resistance. They're throwing things over the fortress to strike the Muslims who are outside. And this is exactly where the arrow goes through the clothing of the Prophet. It was at this fort, the fort of Nizar. So, they're putting up a stiff fight. And at this point, we have the narration which draws a comparison between. Khaybar and Badr A similarity Because as the Muslims are outside of this fort Dealing with this fierce resistance now The Prophet ﷺ He takes a handful of pebbles And very similar to Badr He tosses them Not at the faces of those who are hundreds of yards away But towards the fortress itself very similar to Badr. رَمَيْتَ رَمَيْتَ because when he threw those pebbles at the fort, the walls of the fortress began to shake. But that wasn't enough to get them to surrender. Now, the Prophet and the Muslims use another strategy. Remember at the fort of Sa'ab ibn Mu'adh, in addition to the food, they also found the siege equipment. Now they're going to use the siege equipment to try to open the fort. If they can't get it open by the Jews inside opening it and letting them in, or getting in, they're going to use the manganel to somehow break the wall somewhere so they have an opening to get inside, perhaps open the door from the inside and let the rest of the fighters in, and just overwhelm them with, Sheer numbers and force of action and surprise. So they assembled this mangonel because it wasn't put together when they captured it. They put it together, and so now they have the means of doing siege warfare. They begin to lob stones at the wall of the fort. We don't know exactly how large the stones were, but when you look at mangonels across history, look at the images, you see that the stones are not that massive. You could say 20 to 40, maybe 50 pounds per stone. It depends on the size of the manganel, of course, and how many men are manning it because it requires manpower. But they're using the manganel and they're tossing stones at the wall of the fort. And as they continue to lob stones at the fort, it creates a crack in the foundation. And when that crack, it eventually opens and the Muslims are able to break their way inside and get inside of this fort. So again... There's fighters inside of this fort. So they are expecting some resistance inside. Those that were not defeated in Naim moved to the fort of Sa'b ibn Mu'adh. Those who were able to escape that fort went to uh, the other fort. And now they're here at Nizar fort. So they get inside and what do you think happened? Do you think that they put up a stiff resistance inside of the fort? Or do you think that, like the other times, they also beat a hasty retreat and got out of the fort? What do you think happened? Hmm? The second option? You are correct. Mm -hmm. You are correct. They leave, and they go to another set of fortresses belonging to an area called Katiba. So this is, you know, it's hard to picture all of this unless you've seen it, but... They move from that fortress to another set of fortresses called Katiba. There at Katiba, on that second side of Khaybar, you have three fortresses. You have Qamus, you have Watih, and you have Sulalim. Three fortresses. Qamus, Watih, and Sulalim. Of these three fortresses that they go to, the strongest of these three was known as Qamus. That was the strongest. The Prophet ﷺ and the companions marched to that fort. Now they're outside of the fort of Qamus and they lay siege to it. This siege, if you go back, one was three days, another was three days, one was about 10 days. The siege of the Qamus fort took 20 days. It was a formidable fortress. It was the strongest of their fortresses. It took 20 days. And the details are very scant about how exactly Allah gave them the opening to conquer that fort. But they do tell us that Allah gave victory to the Muslims after 20 days at the hands of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. He was able to break through, get inside and end the siege victoriously. Inside of this fort, there is a person. There is a young lady, and her name was Safiya bint Huyay. And her story we'll tell, tell next week. It's a very interesting and amazing story. It's quite a long story, but she is inside of this fortress. She was taken captive while inside of this fortress. So the Muslims are now rested. They're well fed, and they're having success after success. It takes some three days, it takes others 20 days, but it's going pretty well. And the Jews in these fortresses, the ones that are in, the ones on the other side and the ones that scattered, they all realize that after all of these days, now more than a month, no help is coming. The allies of Ghatafan, you know, messages were sent, they got the messages, but we know they turned back they now realize no help is coming. So now they are effectively locked inside of their own fortresses. They've imprisoned themselves. So there's, there's only one solution here. That solution is surrender. That's the only solution. So after the Muslims were able to get inside of the strongest of their forts on the second side of Khaybar, the fort of Qamus They now turned their attention to the fort of Watih and Sulalim. These were the last two to be captured. If these two are captured, it's done, it's over. They went to these two fortresses and they sieged them and the siege lasted there 14 days and no one was able to come outside of the forts this time. And at the end, the Prophet ﷺ thought about using the mangonel again, but he realized there was no need because the Jews inside of these forts realized that it's game over. This is a lost cause. And finally, after all of these days, they decided that they were going to discuss terms of surrender, discuss the terms of their willing surrender. So that's really the battle of Khaybar. Now, there is some discussion among the scholars of Seera, both among the early generations and latter uh, scholars, about the nature of this Ghazwa. Do we consider it a Fath in the sense that the Muslims conquered the people of Khaybar? Or do we look at it as a surrender? What is the nature of the victory, conquest or surrender? Now, we can say with certainty that it was not a victory in the ordinary sense of the word, where you have two sides lined up against each other and one side defeats the other side militarily, reducing their ability to fight. It clearly wasn't that kind of a victory because they're moving around. They're not really putting up uh, such a fierce battle that it can be compared to. Uh, formation, classical warfare. Uh, despite the occasional ferocity of the duels and the fights outside of these forts, we see in the seerah that the casualties weren't actually that great, right? We have, for example, Ibn Hisham, uh, he mentions that of the fighters of the Yehud of Khaybar, the casualties were 93 warriors. 93 out of 4,000 at the lowest number, 93. And on the Muslim side, we have 15 to 17 people were slain in battle. So in the big picture, it wasn't such a large battle that had heavy casualties on either side. Now, despite the actual figures, when you go into the books of Sirah, such as Ibn Hisham, Waqidi, Ibn Sa'd and others, you find them saying things uh, that give you the impression that it was a massive battle and there were massive casualties suffered on both sides. Sometimes there is this mubalagha, there's a, a kind of hyperbole used in describing the outcomes of these battles. Uh, Ibn Sa'd for instance, he mentions in his tabaqat, that it was the fiercest combat. They killed a large number of companions, and, they, and the Muslim side also killed a large number of them. It's relative, isn't it? I mean, 93 is not a small number, but it's not even... I, I, don't, I can't do the math in my head right now, but if you, if you say 10,000, 93 out of 10,000, or 93 out of 4,000 or 5,000, it's not a large number for a battle. And for the Muslim side to lose 15 out of 1700, that's still not a huge number that would warrant saying that the Muslims suffered large casualties. So you do come across this mubalagha, this hyperbole at times in the books of seerah, also in Tarajim. It is an issue, and you just have to be aware that uh, we don't take everything 100% literally. They say 10,000, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, not literally 10,000 know, in an h- actual headcount. So ultimately, we would say that Khaybar was a conquest, but it ended with the Jews of Khaybar surrendering. And we say that because had the Yehud of Khaybar wished to surrender at the very beginning, they could have done so. They could have negotiated the terms of surrender without any fighting whatsoever. The fact that they armed themselves, the fact that they put men outside in battle formations for some of those days before the Muslims arrived, the fact that they put up resistance coming out and fighting in duels, the fact that they're retreating and going to this one and firing from it for days on end, indicates that yes, they are putting up a fight. So it is a ghazwa. It wasn't just a surrender from the very beginning, but it was a conquest that was ultimately attained by their willing surrender at the very end it was basically their final option so now we come to the part where there's a peace treaty there's the terms of surrender being discussed and this is important in connection to the story of sophia and other developments so you remember one of the chiefs of the yahud of khaybar kinana ibn abi huqayq he is the one who sent out the group of his people, to go talk to the tribe of Ghatafan to ask for their allegiance and support to join them in fighting the Muslims. Well, he's the one who sent that letter out. He was the one in the surrender who sent out the message asking to negotiate the terms. And so they agreed upon a truce, and they agreed that they will all collectively leave Khaybar In exile Just like Banu Nadir was exiled Just like uh, Banu Qaynuqa was exiled From Khaybar they're agreeing That they will self exile That was a part of the terms And they're agreeing that in this exile They're going to leave behind All of their property Except what they have On their person That means they're going to leave behind the property They're going to leave behind the gold They're going to leave behind the silver and the weapons and the horses. And they're even leaving behind the clothes except whatever they're wearing on their person and carrying with them as they leave, you know, sustainment and whatnot. Another part of this truce agreement is that they would not conceal anything from the Prophet They are literally agreeing that this is what we're going to do and... We're not going to tell lies and conceal what we have. If you ask us what we have, we're going to be open and forthcoming and tell you exactly what we have. We're not going to hide it from you. And you see the problem here. This is going to become an issue. So, a part of the agreement is if they're asked about the whereabouts of something, they're going to share it. And if they tell a lie, Or they hide stuff or conceal it in some way This forfeits the agreement And they return to a state of combat Where it is licit according to the terms That they face the penalties of that Which could be uh, capital punishment They agreed to this And in the wording of the treaty The Prophet ﷺ said and you will forfeit my protection and the protection of Allah if you keep anything from me. They swore to this with a solemn oath, including their leader, Kinana ibn uh, Abi huqayq Now Kinana was also in this period, he was a newlywed. He was a newlywed. He just got married. Who did he marry? Safiyyah. And we'll tell her story next week. He recently married Safiyyah bint Huyay. So he swore to this, but the next thing that happens is a clear lie. He is asked about gold, silver, other precious belongings that the Prophet knew he had because of the intelligence that came to him. So he asked about, where are these precious items? And Kinana lied. He said that, oh, we use them, you know, they're all used up because we had to spend money to get provisions and weapons, you know, to get ready for this battle. So we spent all the money. We don't have it anymore. But he was lying. And the Prophet knew he was lying. So the Prophet says to him, what do you say if I find them in your possessions? Shall I have you killed as a result? Because they agreed to this. And Kinana very brashly said, Yes, of course. Yeah. Now the Prophet ﷺ gives the instruction to the Sahaba to go around some of the ruins of these forts. Some of them have been, the walls have been knocked down and the fighting through the use of the mangonel And they're digging around, looking for where he may have hid these precious possessions. We're talking lots of gold and silver and precious things. So they dig around, and guess what they find? Nothing. (laughs) They don't find anything. And so they go to Kinara, and they ask him to share the, the location of the precious jewels, but he refuses, and he knows that he's hidden them. And so the penalty was uh, carried out against him because he broke this treaty not even hours after it was signed. So it was at this point, after witnessing this, that the rest of the Yehud of Khaibar uh, had an idea. It dawned on them that if they self-exile, if they leave Khaybar, they're gonna leave all of these date palm orchards. And the Muslims don't have enough people, nor do they have the requisite experience to be able to manage all of these orchards. So eventually, they realized that if we go, it will be unmanned. These things will not be harvested properly. It will eventually all go to waste. So now they had an idea. They go to the Prophet ﷺ and they ask him for permission to remain so they can work on the land and just keep half of the crop yields. So they say, If you allow us to remain, we will work. All expenses are on us. We will work on the date palm trees. We'll harvest them. We'll prepare them. And in a yearly yield, we'll keep 50% for ourselves. But we give you the other 50%. With no additional cost And so the Prophet ﷺ agreed to this They said let us remain Let us take care of its crops We have more experience in it than all of you And we're more capable in keeping it thriving And he agreed to this Because he knew that he did not have enough Muslims To dedicate 1000 plus people To full time work on these date palm plantations nor do, they, do the majority of the Muslims have that kind of experience. Yes, the people of Medina, among them, have that experience, but not enough to really do it adequately in such large numbers in Khaybar. So they agreed to keep this uh, 50% of the crop yield yearly in return for allowing them to remain. That became the norm and the Jews of Khaybar continued to live there with this agreement uh, up until the Khilafah of Umar bin Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, uh, in the latter period of his Khilafah during around the 23rd year after the Hijrah. It was then that he decided that he would carry out the, the exile because it was left up to the, the discretion of the Prophet ﷺ how long they would be allowed to be in that arrangement. So he, as the Khalifa, determined that, well, now we have so many Muslims from everywhere, there's enough people, there's enough experience, we don't need to have this arrangement anymore. And so he carried out that part of the deal, which is that at a time of their choosing, they could end this agreement and they would have to go. And so he exiled them to this place called Tayma in Ariha. So what this meant was that If you use modern terms, you know, you have the GDP of a country, the gross domestic product. Imagine if you have a, a quote-unquote, third world country. uh, All of a sudden, overnight, their GDP equals that of a first world country, or close to it. That's kind of what happened, Because... Now that 50% of the crop yield of this massive oasis town of Khaibar is coming to the Muslims, that means that now year after year there's a constant influx of massive amounts of wealth. Because remember, dates are not just for eating, they're for selling. You sell them, you barter them for other things. So dates are like money, they're like dollars. So imagine if you have this large oasis town that specializes in producing dates, sending 50% of their yield to you yearly. That's a great influx of cash, and there's no uh, overhead involved because you don't have to spend a penny because they're dealing with that on, on their side. You just take the dates and you make the money from them. So this was a great boon for the Muslims. In fact, we have some narrations that Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, for instance, he said, before Khaybar, we never ate until we actually felt full. We only ate our fill after Khaybar was opened. Because now with more money, there's uh, economic development, there's an influx that enables them to purchase more food and no longer be as hungry. So this is a part of the Ghanima that Allah Ta'ala had promised the Muslims in Surah al that was revealed on the way back from Hudaybiyah to Medina. وَمَغَانِمَ kathira. Allah promised them abundant Ghanima. And because it was promised as abundant, Rasulullah gave those who participated at Khaybar extra shares of Ghanima. Because it's not just ordinary ganima; it's maghanim kathira, lots of ghanima. So they all received extra shares, and Allah fulfilled the promise in their conquest of Khaybar. Imam al-Waqidi records in his maghazi that the, the produce of dates from Katiba, just Katiba, that one area in Khaybar, was 8,000. Uh, barrels of dates, 3,000 measures of barley, and 1,000 measures of uh, date stones. What are you going to do with date stones? You're not going to eat them. You, you crush them up, and you use that to feed camels. So that's animal feed. just costly. So that's just in Katiba, not to mention the other areas around Khaybar. So this is a lot of money now coming into the, uh, into the Muslims' uh, possession year after year without any effort on their part. So this would be, if you think about it, what's going on in Mecca now? Of course the news reaches the people of Mecca and they were greatly disturbed by this. Imagine the people of Mecca, Quraysh, have a peace treaty, a temporary truce, with the Muslims in Medina. But they're still enemies. So imagine your enemy had a third world GDP. And literally in two, three, four weeks time, they now have a yearly GDP that is equal to yours or greater. It becomes an economic threat. It becomes a problem. They were bothered by the fact that the Muslims had uh, defeated the Yahud at Khaybar. They considered it a loss for themselves as well. Not only is it because of the money, it's also because of the physical control, the political control over this area of Khaybar. So you have outlying tribes that are allied with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now Khaybar has, is under the political control of the Prophet Sallallahu And this would lead to a kind of trickle down effect on some of the outlying tribes and areas. So you have in the seerah this kind of domino effect that is described in the aftermath of Khaybar. You have this other area not too far away called Wadi Al-Qura. Wadi Al-Qura, when the people there got word of the victory at Khaybar, guess what they decided? They decided, well, we're going to give 50% of our crop yields yearly as well. There's no fighting involved here. They just decided, well, we're going to do the same thing. So we have this alliance, we have this agreement So that we're under terms of peace With the Prophet Sallallahu The same thing happened uh, With the people of Fadak Which is near Khaybar They sent a letter to the Prophet Sallallahu Saying they agreed to the exact same conditions 50% of our yield Will give to you yearly So Wadi Al-Qura is now giving 50% The people of Fadak Are giving 50% And both of them are giving Without any fighting It was a willing agreement They made without any fighting beforehand Now with Fedak, The Prophet Sallallahu Would use the proceeds of that For uh, caring for his family With the bayt That was from the proceeds of Fedak. So this victory at Khaybar Is very different from the victories Allah gave them at uh, Khandaq very different from the outcome of Uhud, very different from the victory Allah gave them at Badr. Because it was through siege warfare, it ended with a surrender, and its aftermath brought this great influx of wealth. In fact, with the exception of Hunain, the greatest amount of Ghanima ever received by the Muslims after battle was the Battle of Khaybar. It brought the most amount of wealth, and with that, as news spreads We have some people who finally Discover the means To return to Medina Or to come back to the Arabian Peninsula And those are The muhajirun Who had made hijrah to Habasha To Abyssinia So inshallah next week we're going to talk about Their return We'll talk about Uh Uh, Jafar Tayyar will talk about some other people who made their way north to Medina, Uh, Dos, Abu Huraira radiyallahu anhu and his story, Uh, the marriage to Safiya bint Huyay and other details in the post-Khaybar environment as we get further and further along. bi Allah ta'ala, Wallahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.
1: Done so the first thing
2: here is interesting how we take the the problem. interesting that the fourth of only three days, the fourth of took ten. he yeah. made Well, uh,
0: the beginning. Set the tone, didn't it? The first four Naim took some time, but at the end it was Marhab and Yasir, wasn't it? It was welcoming and easy. And you know, when you say welcoming and easy, it's relative. Because no one's saying that it was easy after that as if it was a walk in the park. But relative to what it could have been, it was made easy for sure.
2: Yehud hands. Why do they have this stuff flying around? It's kind of odd. I don't know if anybody picked that up. Like, why do they have this stuff? They're the ones in the
0: yeah. It's an interesting pattern of them having odd things that they may use. Um, I don't. I have never encountered any discussion about why they had the equipment for siege warfare. But my only guess, and it's just a guess, is that they would sometimes fight each other. (laughs) And if you are within one clan and you are fighting with another clan, you have a fort, they have a fort. So if you are both fighting, just as you can go inside, they can go inside. So how would you beat them? Mm -hmm. Buy the siege warfare equipment and you can use it to knock down their walls. Should that ever be a problem? But it was disassembled, so there's no indication that they were currently using it or using it just before against each other. I, I, I haven't actually seen anyone discuss why that was the case, but that's a guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh,
2: kind of
0: ties
2: into everything there. Yeah. I don't know if this eye was from prior, two
0: You eat a date. The pit, right. the, the date pit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Camels can <laughs> eat a lot of hard <laughs> substances. Uh, camels, they have the 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 roof of their mouth and on the sides are as bad as. It's similar to the material in a hoof. It's very thick and hard. And they can eat thorny bushes. They just crush these things like it's no one's business. So they will crush the date stones, the date pits, and they would eat that as a feed.
2: The you know, one question I you is, don't meat need uh, mm-hmm. So what is the ruling then on horse meat? Because I'm seeing people saying it's much mm-hmm. Why don't you need
0: Horse meat being yeah, well, there's a difference of opinion about uh, horse meat. Um, in, in the school of Imam Madik, uh, horse meat, like donkey meat and mule meat, is haram. Uh, because according to Imam Madik and in his usool, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions by way of restriction, by hasar, the usages of the horses, mules, and donkey, the that you ride them and for adornment, so he understood that to be a hassle or a kind of restriction that they're only to be used for that purpose. Ergo, you cannot eat them right uh, in the in the hanafi school there's there's two views about that uh, on eating horse meat. I um, think we discussed it in the far line, didn't we? yeah. Um, if i'm not mistaken uh, yeah, i think it is the view of imam muhammad bin hasan shaybani that uh, allows it uh, they didn't see it because it's not from the uh, khaba'ith
2: of course horse. just horse don't
0: yeah. across the border. this hadith is clear okay. there's there's no explicit hadith about horse like we have about the donkey in al is a
2: combination
0: yeah, okay, correct. Well, <laughs> <laughs> find, it, find it, that donkeys along
2: and across the board, right. right? And then, horse,
1: are different. And the is the same thing, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, not much. I
2: mean,
0: if it is a riding animal. Yeah, I mean, in the Madaki school, it's probably the most uh, permissive when it comes to what you can eat among these creatures. Although, in the school, eating donkey meat is haram, uh, as well as horses.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah. yeah
0: because the, so there's there's the principle uh, you have to measure necessity according to its its level so this is not at the level of a legitimate fear of loss of life it was just the pains of hunger right and it would not have been a legitimizing there were probably other sources of food, just not enough to really feel super nourishing, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. This is before the Ayat of Jizya. Uh,
0: it, you know, in a sense But the actual jizya The actual tax Of the jizya is significantly lower Than what they were giving So this, is a, this was a temporary Agreement they made And the discretion Was left to the Prophet And then his khulafa After him for how long that agreement will remain And that's why when Omar Realized that there's no longer A need to keep this arrangement He carried out what was the ultimate objective of that, which was to exile them because there's no longer a need for them to serve that purpose since there are so many more Muslims now that numerically it was easy to uh, give them that position and experientially you had enough people with that knowledge of how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically an agreement to cease hostilities and to pay this uh, in an open ended way for as as long as the Prophet saw fit, uh, leaving it to him to end that arrangement at a time of his choosing.
2: Yeah. So they went back to the
0: fourth, time? Yeah, they went back to where they were, yeah. And this carried on. So this is what year? This is year seven. So it lasted until the 23rd year after Hijrah.
1: So a, good, a little over
0: a dozen years.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm? Qamus? Uh, no, no. D- dictionary is called Qamus because the is, the Dictionary is large. It's the other way around. Oh. The Dictionary is Mu'jam. Uh, but you have the famous Qamus al-Muhit by the Pharaoh Zabadi. He has one of the one of the best of the ma'ajim, the lexicons. And because qamus means something massive and gargantuan, he gave his dictionary the name Al-qamus, Al-muhit, the, the encompassing, comprehensive, uh, large collection on the meanings of words. And for one reason or another, people would use the word qamus to apply to any dictionary. It's kind of, I think the closest thing that we have is, uh, what do you call those? We, we say Q-tips, all right? Even if the brand is not, Q-tip is a brand. It's, it's not a name. We use a Kleenex. It's a it's a tissue, it's a mendil. But we use the, the name of the founding brand to anything that's like it.
1: yeah, yeah so similar, not not 100 percent the same, but similar, yeah Is it big There you go.
2: no Absolute indication, let's say it's ten thousand versus four uh, thousand. Because uh, uh, the, uh, Sheikh, I know he was speaking, he am of regarding uh, the ayah. You a Oh, yeah, If you could buy by a thousand? Elf is just a large number. Of, uh, yeah,
1: Arabs.
2: yes, the Arabs, like in Arabic language, you say you say well, a thousand people were there.
1: Yeah,
0: like, exactly. You know, there
2: could be three hundred there's like a million people there. Same thing, so like, yeah. it's just, yeah, P.S., objective P.S. of a
1: large...
0: Yeah, seven, 70, 700, 7,000, mm-hmm. 70,000, they say this is mutlaqul kathra It's just an open-ended, absolute abundance. And in, in, in fiqh terms, this also applies. Uh, in his Al-Adhkar, Imam al nawawi talks about the prohibitions of the tongue. And in the section on lying, he says that it is not considered a lie if a person says to someone else, Ah, I've told you a thousand times. Because what is intended by that is Mutlaqul Kathra. Just, I've told you so many times. And a thousand is basically shorthand or stands in place for that expression of open ended abundance. So, yeah.
2: Not a thousand
1: thousand, yeah, so
2: they allow us to understand,
1: yeah, for sure. Say insha'Allah. Alhamdulillah,